and welcome to Cheer Up, Buddy, the Sad Man Movie Podcast. I'm Tom. I'm Riddy. And this week we're talking about Seven Samurai, the 1954 Akira Kurosawa Samurai Classic. Riddy, how you doing? I'm okay. It looks like it might be the end of the world here in California. But other than that, I'm doing okay. How are you? Uh, well, I had REM queued up, but I guess we don't want to worry about a copyright infringement. Everybody um, hurts. <laughs> oh, that actually, I was thinking it's the end of the world, but yeah. No, I know, really, I know, I know. That really like should a, be our theme song. It should be. Well, we could negotiate with REM and see if uh, they'll they'll license the song to us. Oh, maybe we could get Michael Stipe as a guest. He'd be fascinating, I bet. I don't know if he's from Athens, but REM definitely formed in Athens. So mm-hmm. maybe I could talk to him about that. Well, we have an end, so we'll have to we'll have to <laughs> jump on that. Yeah, we had a snowstorm yesterday here in Colorado, so I guess we're just kind of having apocalyptic weather on the west west side of the United States at the moment. Yeah, we're I guess we're finally paying that price for global warming, huh? Oh, that hoax! Liberal hoax. <laughs> All right. Well, this week we're talking about Seven Samurai. You were very upset. Well, I should say very upset. You were very surprised. I had never seen this when we when it came up in conversation in a previous episode. And yeah, we had been watching uh, Akiru starring Takashi Shimaru as uh, Johnny Akiru. And you mentioned you hadn't seen Seven Samurai. And so uh, I was surprised given that you're a uh, fan of Toshiro Mifune. And mm-hmm. so we're continuing our run of crowd-pleasing, recent, non-foreign <laughs> language films, successfully alienating the audience. But don't worry, we are, we are, we are going to a very different style of film next, uh, for the next episode. Well, we'll save that to the end. Did I ever tell you about my Toshiro Mifune t-shirt? Did I ever show that yes, to you? Yes, you have. But, yeah. but tell the audience, all, all, three, of, all three of them. Oh, well, I just had a, a t-shirt of uh, the actor Toshiro Mifune, who's a, I mean, he's one of the seminal Japanese actors, known mostly for samurai films. And the image of the t-shirt I had on was saying was like, in a furious rage, I forget which film it was from. I want to say maybe it was Throne of Blood, but mm-hmm. I can't remember for sure. But the funny thing about this t-shirt is I bought it at a comic book convention that I went to in, I think, 2004. And it was in South Florida and I made my mom go with me because I thought it'd be really funny to make her go with me to uh, a con. And while we were there, this was during the height of Kill Bill fandom. David Carradine was there signing autographs, the the titular bill. And we decided the, the convention really kind of sucked. It was in a very small hotel. It was nothing like Dragon Con or Comic Con or any like the real major cons. And then we, so we get in line to get an autograph with them. And this was like back in the era of digital cameras. I guess one of us must have had one on us or they were, they had one. And like, you could pay to get a photo with him. And I was like, can I just lean over the table and get a photo with him? And he's just like, just take a photo for free. And I guess in the process of my mom taking a photo of me with David Carradine, he winked at her. So I can now say that David Carradine I guess tried to flirt with my mom, so I guess there's some bragging rights there. What See, I don't I know, but there's something there. Being, I remember that story being sle- uh, David Carradine being sleazier in that story. I mm-hmm. guess Winky isn't too bad. I think that's like because I, I thought he was a real sleazeball after 
uh, you told me that story, and I, you know, I, I just figured he was like kind of gross. Well, I, you know, I do worry sometimes. Like, was he thinking of my mom when he put that belt around his neck? But uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's a little too morbid to wonder and speculate about. Oof. Uh, it's too bad Uma Thurman had better things to do than visit this con. Oh, for sure. But who could blame her? Uh, <laughs> anyways. She had to show, uh, yeah. what's his face, her feet. Ugh, Quentin Tarantino. I, I think feet are so disgusting. <laughs> I mean, I don't hate feet, but I don't love feet. I, they exist. I'd rather they Man. be there than not be there. I have a gross foot story. It's not my story. It's just some, uh, but I'm not going to sidetrack us on that. Anyways, yes. <laughs> do you have a summary? Do you have a summary for us for Seven Samurai? I think I can I can pull one out of my behind. Um, in Akira Kurosawa's most celebrated film, Seven Samurai, 1954, Seven Samurai, a village of farmers contracts samurai to protect them from roving bandits led by Kambe Shimada, Takashi Shimura, and Kikuchio Toshiromufune. Since I tend to forget this for most of our movies, I wanted to make sure that we hit on it. Who is the sad man in this movie? I was wondering that as well yesterday. Because there's, I guess there's not a definitive one central focus sad man. But I did have in my notes that there's a lot of crying, sad, angry men to start this movie off. And really a lot I of mean, it's kind the... of through the movie, there's like a lot of men crying for sure. Oh, yeah. It, it, it starts off with the villagers being like, oh, God, these bandits are going to come back and just destroy our town again because it happened, I guess, before. I guess they stole the rice crops in the past. And in this situation, they're going to mm -hmm. steal the barley crops. And so they're they're all sad, kind of freaking out, not knowing what to do. And as you as we go on, we start meeting the samurais and the i guess sort of the leader of the samurais is what kambe is that how you pronounce yeah, that yeah and he's the same actor as the main character in I ikiru and so mm -hmm. he's sort of a sad he's like he's more of a i wouldn't say sad necessarily he's more of kind of like melancholy where he's just like i've seen a lot of shit nothing makes me happy or or sad really <laughs> anyway he's just kind of yeah. like it's like a dulled affect but not necessarily like miserable yeah. And he ends up being the sort of leader of the of the group. And I guess the most memorable of the samurai is the Toshiro Mifune character, uh, Kikuchio. And he yeah. actually ends up being a very sad man because it starts off, he's sort of like a joke. He's passing himself off as a samurai and everybody just thinks he's a drunk idiot, which he is. Yeah. But he kind of just follows the group around and they finally uh, sort of adopt him because he proves himself useful. He's insane. He's always laughing at stuff and cracking jokes. But we do find out later on that uh, he has a very sad, tragic backstory. So I, I won't jump into that quite yet. But yeah, there's some there's a, enough sad men here to justify this being a sad man movie. That's for sure. <laughs> Seven sad men uh, is we could have named the podcast that, too, I guess. But we either need seven hosts or stop at seven movies. So. I was going to start off by saying this is my favorite movie, and I was thinking about doing it in November for like our birthday picks. But I was also hoping that I'd become better as a podcaster. And here we are, like, you know, eight episodes later, and I'm no better for it. So decided to do it anyway. And as you mentioned, I was surprised you hadn't seen it. So I wanted to kind of watch it with you. And there was a time where I'd been watching this like maybe once a year or so. And it's like, 
you know, for me in terms of like quote unquote cinema, like this is one of the formative films for me. Definitely, if you ask me, it's one of my favorites. And so here we are. Well, yeah. And then you well, let's oh, go ahead. Let's jump into that a little bit. Why is it one of your favorites? I so I caught it on one of those like hoity toity uh, cinema channels. So like the classic movie channel, maybe back when it still showed classic movies. And I caught it like halfway or two thir- two thirds of the way through. And I was just like entranced. I hadn't seen it before. And, you know, it was black and white and I didn't speak any Japanese. This was like high school, you know, second, uh, second or wait, third or fourth year of high school. And I didn't even, I didn't really know if it was like Japanese or Chinese or what it was. And just watched it was, and, you know, wasn't tranced. So it must've been like 2000, 2001 and amazon.com had just started selling stuff that wasn't books. And so they were selling like DVDs and stuff. So bought this DVD, watched it, watched the commentary on it, like really sort of fell in love with it. I had a known later on and uh, this is going to be like sort of bitchy, but I kind of mean it that way, but I kind of, you know, mostly as a joke, but you know, we have a straightforward sort of action film here with no scenes bleeding into other scenes, no like stuttering retakes of a scene. Uh, None of this like, uh, you know, uh, cinema, avant-garde cinema stuff that we've done so far. And so <laughs> we have a straightforward sort of like action movie that is like well-made and, you know, it's a long movie. There's, you know, it's, I think the, there are different cuts, but the the cut that I have for Criterion and it was on Apple, you know, kind of, I bought it on Apple's like movie, whatever, iTunes, I guess, uh, was like three hours and like 26 or 27 minutes. So it's like, long but it's not like a slow movie um it moves quickly like i i would say there isn't a lot of fat on the film like everything it, the movie does is it does for a purpose and we can talk about that i thought a lot about the mcu as i was watching this um recently mm-hmm. or you know the, for this time like it's a big investment in sort of like sitting down and watching it so you know i haven't watched it in years and it's been it was very pleasant to come back and see it and kind of revisit it in the same way we did akiru but um, you mentioned that Takashi Shimura is in Akira, like the lead in Akiru and is sort of one of the co-leads in this movie. And I wanted to ask you, like, what do you think after having seen Akiru and then um, this movie of like his work? Well it, and... me, well, it makes me appreciate him as an actor more because in Akiru, he's just looks like he's on the verge of death the whole time, looks sad and pathetic. And just he you believe that this man's on the verge of dying. Mm-hmm. And then on this, he you know, he's a, he's like an older man hero, which was very interesting to see. And it's not like he's doing daring do a lot of his heroics are just brought about by strategy and just kind of like thinking through ways of kind of getting to his end result without having to necessarily like just straight up fight somebody. Like we see that very, like very early on. One of the first things we see in the movie after the villagers realize they have to hire samurais to protect themselves is he they go to this nearby city and they see this one samurai having his hair shaved off at the river and like what the hell's going on you almost think he's like being disgraced or being kicked out or something like that and then you find out he's shaving his head so he can pretend to be a monk to help rescue a baby that's been kidnapped by a a, a thief who's taken the baby hostage and is hiding in a nearby building and so you kind of really like, oh, this guy is, this is a, this is a clever man. He's sneaky. 
he's going to do kind of think outside the box to kind of save the day. You recognize him as the same actor. You can look at his face and be like, oh, that's the guy who looks so sad. He was guilting people into giving him whatever he wanted in the previous movie. And now he's this like venerable, dignified leader who you'd be like, yeah, this guy definitely seems like someone who can save the day in a very roundabout way. Yeah, I saw this movie before Ikiru. And so it was kind of the opposite for me, like the criterion commentary sort of constantly refers to him as a leader of men. And, um, you know, he is like this sort of statesman samurai person in the movie uh, in Seven Samurai. And then to see him like just completely beaten down in Ikiru, like it does like his range is amazing um, and you don't get to really see it in either of these films completely like you see him as a leader of men in this one you see him as this beaten down bureaucrat in Ikiru and it uh man my stuff is beeping um but you don't really you know you don't get that full range until you see him in like multiple movies and you know this is something that we sort of I was going to note or I noted you see like a lot of the same faces that were in Ikiru in this movie as well playing like different roles or things like that and Kurosawa really had like a stable of actors he went back to over and over again. And, you know, Toshiro Mufune is like among them because he's in multiple like, you know, Kurosawa movies and often as a samurai or, or whatever, but, you know, some of the contemporary movies as well. And so we can start off kind of discussing the plot a little bit. As we mentioned at the beginning, um, we see bandits coming over the hill and they're discussing kind of taking uh, the, the village's crops uh, once they've sort of uh, harvested those crops. And then after that, uh, we see that one of the villagers has been hiding sort of in front of them and hears the conversation and goes back to the village. And there's much wailing and gnashing of teeth as they uh, feel like, you know, they're just being taken for everything they have. And so eventually they talk to the village head person or whoever, the oldest kind of man in the village. And uh, he recommends like hiring some samurai to defend the village. And so a small group of the villagers, um, the ones we get to know best, uh, go into, uh, I guess, a nearby town and start looking for samurai, you know, quote unquote, the, or quote the, uh, uh, the village elder, a hungry samurai that will, that will defend the village for being fed. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely apparent that they, uh, they're, kind of looking for samurais on the discount, like kind of budget bottom of the barrel. This movie definitely starts out on a sense of desperation and you kind of see that it, even though it starts off that way, it doesn't kind of follow through the entire film where it doesn't seem like oppressively sad and depressing the whole way. Like they, it kind of starts off and they're just trying to just round people up and figure out how many they need, how many they can afford. And this is kind of like, it doesn't seem realistic that they're going to find anybody early on. And mm-hmm. then they do find the, uh, the, the Kambe character. Who's just sort of like this. How old would you say he is? Like maybe in his, maybe in like his fifties or something like that. Yeah, I would, that sounds right. But as you know, from previous conversations on this podcast, I have no idea how old anyone is. Kambe could be a hundred for all I know, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's he's up there, but at the yeah. same time, you kind of something about him. He has this gravitas where he's just like this guy knows how Not to that handle much older himself. than us, frighteningly. <sighs> <sighs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it, 
you know, it, it has some comedic elements to it. And there's like a young guy gets gets pulled into it because he sees uh, he sees the sa- the the guy save the baby. And he's like, I want to be your apprentice. And he's like, I can't afford that. And he's like, I'm just going to follow you around regardless. And he's like, fine, whatever. And then they just start yeah. recruiting. They start recruiting samurais from that point on. Yeah. And I guess this is uh, this was sort of the one of the first major instances of forming a team. I read that somewhere that this was, I don't know if this was the first film that kind of had that trope or what is a now trope, but from the research I did, it seemed to indicate this was kind of like one of the major first instances of a film showing like, Oh, we got to get a team together in, in order to reach a common goal. So that was kind of interesting to think about. Cause like, I have to admit watching it, like it's obviously a, a very good movie, but I feel like since so many films have derived their stories from it, it's sort of like yeah. devalued it, seen it, like seeing having seen like, you know, maybe a dozen iterations of this by this point yeah. in my life. Like it kind of diminishes the the impact of seeing this because it's like if I'd seen this first, I'd be like, oh my God, this is so revolutionary, it's so good, but it's like it's tough to kind of not board's too strong of a word but like having seen it so many times it's like okay i get it and it you have to kind of like take a step back and be like no 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 this is the first time that this ever really occurred so like you had to kind of come in and change your perspective and how you're you had kind of have that historical context to fully appreciate it at this point in time since it's been like so seminal of a film throughout the world like it's hard to fully appreciate it because it's been so many versions watered down versions of it since it's been out yeah i actually had a list magnificent seven obviously is a a pretty close remake of this um a bug's life uh i haven't seen it but the 13th warrior is evidently like pretty close to seven samurai um is that the piano one i think so Hmm. um i need to look into it and to see a if it's a good movie and b if it's sad man enough to be on the podcast yeah i mean um, for keanu to yeah. be our spokesman in a way we really should do a keanu movie at some point i don't feel like he's ever that sad though we'll have to like figure that out because i'm thinking back to like the matrix or bill and tad and he's never like we may have to do a deep cut and do like the lake house or something <laughs> yeah and obviously there's a lot of star wars like our star wars has a lot of like kurosawa dna um mm-hmm. there's nothing specific in the original star wars like from this movie that I picked up on, except for like, you know, a strong use of light motifs and music and the wipe transitions and things like that. But uh, there are separate episodes of the Mandalorian and the Clone Wars that are like specifically based on this movie, like very obviously mm-hmm. taken from this movie. So um, yeah, like, you know, this is, and these are like the really close sort of copies. That's not even kind of discussing the the ones that are a little further out not as directly derived from it, but yeah, like it's one of the first, like getting the team together movies. Uh, maybe not the first one, but you know, you mentioned that and there's also like the horseman galloping over the hillside is the starting sort of uh, scene of this movie. Like that becomes like a very common trope in Westerns as well. Um, this movie mm-hmm. was inspired by Westerns and then sort of in turn sort of inspired Westerns that came after it. So it's a lot of like, you know, a, a lot of stuff takes from this movie. And uh, so, like, you know, like I said, I saw it sort of as a foundational movie. And so it wasn't like it wasn't like a revelation to me in the sense that obviously, even in high school, like we had seen things where you get the team together, you know, you're 
Ocean's Eleven or whatever the movie mm-hmm. is. And but you know, I did I did sort of see it in a, in a time when it was very formative for me. Yeah, I do have to say I'm a little disappointed that we didn't have seven prequels leading up to this, where we got the backstory of each and every samurai. <laughs> well, case or yeah, I mentioned the MCU and I thought a lot about it because it's a long movie. Again, I, I think there wasn't a lot of fat on Seven Samurai. Like every scene kind of has like a specific pur- purpose within the film. And I thought about like Black Panther 2, for example, where I feel like a good, I don't know, third of the movie was trying to set up the Ironheart TV show mm-hmm. and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which was like, maybe a third like dealing with stuff from uh wandavision and stuff like that and it's like it was a nice time when the movie didn't have like a 50 prequels and then like another 30 like sequels that it tried to had to set up and you know it wasn't like wasting time on you know setting up these movies that we may or may not see or you know mm-hmm. may or aren't important to like this narrative of the you know two to three hour movie that we're watching yeah yeah i mean i i think we kind of aired a lot of our MCU grievances in our Iron Man 3 episode, so I don't, <laughs> I don't want to rehash those again. But before we get too far, I had yeah. a question that I was hoping you could a- answer for me based on your educational background with Japanese history and culture. So one of the things I noticed mm-hmm. very early on in the film is that a lot of the male villagers have what I referred to as a Larry David haircut where they didn't, they <laughs> look like they'd like shaved their heads on top, but still kind of had uh, a good amount of hair on the sides. And it got to mm-hmm. the point where it's like, no, I don't think this is just their natural hair pattern because like every single man seemed to have it. Like, was that like a, an indicator of class or like, was that a look at a time? Or do you, do you have any, information about that because it got to the point where it's like why do they all look like larry david <laughs> uh as we record this the first episode of the last season of uh curb your enthusiasm is playing tonight and so hbo has generously given given us a stipend to uh promote larry david on the podcast uh, God, no. i no wish <laughs> i was actually thinking about this and i thought about researching it um so for samurai like having that um like shaving on the top and then having the little top knot in the back or the like the the little ponytail in the back was like a samurai hairstyle and i was like what a what a paradise for bald men um but i don't think that's true of the farmers so i think the farmers were just like balding or there may have been like some class distinction where it, it may have like filtered down to farmers but i don't think that's the case i think it was just that they were like Larry Daviding it up and there was no sort of, you know, uh, but it's like very indicative of samurai movies and, and movies set in this time. But I think it might've been a way for Kurosawa to show like these, you know, kind of peasants as, as what's the word I'm looking for, like sloppy or, or like uh, not put together. And you can see like in their mm-hmm. clothing and stuff too, like it's all dirty and like tattered and things like that. It is like a samurai haircut. So that's why most of the samurai have like, um shaved heads but it shouldn't be for farmers so i think it's really just like sort of middle-aged you know sort of farming men okay yeah and does this mean that we can consider samurais as for like the first iteration of the the man bun dude bro yes of course no that makes me like the movie slightly less (laughs) white american men just gotta steal everything is what i'm gonna say (laughs) um yeah 
first first they take the yoga then they take the man bun then you get the women then you get the women yeah you touched on something here we mentioned a couple of like common complaints about kurosawa in ikiru but they also show up here um one is that it's a very like male movie like there's oh yeah one maybe one and a half two major female characters and they're not really characters as much as they are like plot objects yeah i, the, I would say there's only one female character really yeah and the, she's there as uh one of the villagers is trying to hide her from the samurai because he's worried the samurai will try and hook up with her yeah so he forcibly cuts off her hair and yeah. tries to, to pass her off as a boy and then the youngest of the samurai eventually meets her in a field and they fall in love and she's just an object of desire for throughout the yeah. film yeah so it's uh yeah not the uh, definitely fails the bechtel test that's for sure yeah and uh i mean that scene was traumatic too i didn't remember how like unpleasant that scene where i think it's monzo cuts off shino's hair and and you know sort of um gets into a a, a florida to, to cut off her hair and make her look like a, a boy um, the other criticism is classism. Like a lot of the comedy kind of comes exp at the expense of uh, the farmers. Um, as we said, they sort of look sloppy and um, starved and, and there's a lot of butt shots. And um, on the other hand, like, you know, this was sort of Kurosawa who, you know, reportedly supposedly comes from a samurai background going across the class divide, you know, people from different classes accomplishing something together. And he also shows like a lot of the samurai sort of thugs. And we have, you know, a later Toshiro Mifune sort of, you know, monologue talking about why the farmers are the way they are. And, you know, there's sort of an uh, almost an implicit, an implicit apology from Kurosawa about these like sort of class divisions um, within the film too. So, you know, we have, I think there's there's something to be said for both sort of perspectives there. Yeah, there. I felt like it was hard for me to watch this and not feel like this was a call for collective action on the whole because there's, uh, I'm trying to find the line right now. I don't have it all written down. I have the, the, the beginning of it, but one of the major lines in the film is by protecting others, you save yourself. And I know there's more to that and I can't find it at the moment, but I feel like that's kind of like the overarching theme of the story is that, a lot of these samurais are like, you know, they may not necessarily be sad men, but they're also not like thriving. They're all kind of like roaming loners and yeah, kind of I mean, they're all like really rodin, like masterless samurai. And, you know, something I, I hadn't super picked on, picked up on before is that, um, uh, is it Shichiroji or like one of the samurai, the one that had worked with Kambe before, it sounded like they had worked for the same feudal lord who got overthrown and that's when they got scattered. So there was like some implication that that was like, you know, that was the case, but these are all like, you know, they're sort of outside the class system in a way too, because they're not like samurai with masters. They're, they're wandering samurai who, um, you know, don't really serve anybody. And then, so as the plot moves on, like, uh, as you said, the farmers have a lot of trouble finding samurai that are willing to kind of, you know, quote unquote, debase themselves to protect the village and that will work for basically just to be fed each day. And eventually they come on, uh, come upon Kambe. And as you know, we talked about, Kambe shows his sort of wiliness and even sort of like how he's okay. What's the word I'm looking for? Okay, like going, uh, breaking the class system a little bit, 
as you said, like, you know, for a samurai to shave his hair was like kind of a big deal. And so, you know, the people watching him are, are sort of horrified by what he's doing. And he uses that as a ruse to like get to the baby that was taken and, you know, made hostage and get the child and, and kill the, the, the thief, I guess. The farmers think that he might be a good candidate to to recruit into their uh, village defense or whatever. And Kambi initially says no, but um, once some of the the thugs living around or staying with the uh, the farmers uh, shows them that you know the the farmers are eating millet, which uh, I've eaten millet. I mean, not cooked millet, but like I had birds, and so like I tasted it. It it, it doesn't taste very good. Like there's no taste. It's 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 not a nutritional, healthy, or tasty food, I would say. But, you know, Kambe eventually, like, relents and agrees to join and uh, begins, like, recruiting other samurai. And we see the, you know, the scene where he has his, you know, I guess, new disciple, Katsushiro, stand behind a door as samurai come in and test them to see if they will get hit, you know, when he hits them with a stick. And the first samurai comes in and is able to disarm uh, Katsushiro pretty quick, easily, um, but refuses to join. And then the next one we see doesn't even walk in the door. He sees there's a, a trick going on already. Um, and in this way, we we recruit uh, six of the seven samurai for you know various skills. Some of them are good strategists or archers. Um, one of them is just like funny, <laughs> and so mm-hmm. uh, Heiachi is you know kind of just the 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 humorist of the group, I guess, or or you know kind of. They call him like a treasure in hard times or, or something like that. And um, that was one of my know. favorite parts of, of the gathering of recruits kind of described that way, because like it showed this kind of unexpected emotional intelligence from the kind of de facto leader where he's just like, yeah, this guy's yeah. not really a good samurai, but he's good for morale. He's like, he'll yeah. just make everybody feel less like shit when we're about to go into battle. It's like, that's a really interesting perspective. You went, you don't really see that often. Like, I feel like that's a kind of like a black eye on a lot of superhero movies now. Where it's like there's always the kind of the the funny person who makes like the the you know the the one liners and stuff like that. Where it's just like yeah, that's just like a trope now. But it was interesting to see like that yeah. was an intentional choice by by the guy in charge because he just thought it was good for morale. I you yeah. never really see that. Like it made me wonder like does that cliche exists because of this and it's funny if it does because the reason it came about in the movie has sort of been abandoned in every subsequent film it's not like oh we're not keeping you here because you make everybody you kind of cut the tension and make it less stressful for everybody it's just going like oh you're a skilled assassin but you got quippy one-liners or it's kind of like oh it's uh it was interesting to see the origins of something that's so ubiquitous it's become annoying yeah but to realize that its origin actually was a very interesting perspective on like forming a group. Yeah. And I mean, there's several things there. I think one of them is like, Kambi is like, obviously like a a leader. And so he probably understands that people, you know, like there needs to be someone who is like, lightens the mood a little bit or, or is able to bring that sort of conscience to the group. Um, I also think like, again, we've talked about MCU movies ad nauseum, but I feel like everyone is that person in an MCU movie. Like every main character is like a quippy, like funny dude. And mm. that like, I think gets annoying. Like would you have like Black Panther being like funny and stuff? It's like, well, you know, he's, I don't know about this. 
Uh, but well, also, that's just annoying because it's a it's a handsome man who's also funny. <laughs> it's just like, oh, leave something for the rest of us. Yeah. And then I think the last thing is it just reminds me of Hawkeye. Like, Hawkeye is that one guy who's like, I don't have any special powers, but occasionally I'm like pretty funny and never liked Hawkeye until I read, uh, what is that, Matt Fraction book, I think, uh, of Hawkeye. I think so. The one where he like is in New York and like takes over a building, and like he, I think his like stepbrother or bro, uh, half brother like comes into the picture or something, and that was like a very good comic book. And I was like, holy shit, I think I like Hawkeye now. But yeah, I totally get it. Uh, you know, it's a very Jar Jar Binks kind of thing, and I also think that you know the way Kurosawa does it in this movie, Heiachi is never like annoying or like the comedy never takes away from like what's going on in the movie. And like, there's a conscience mm-hmm. and he like makes the flag and stuff. And he has a couple of like, you know, really sort of funny things he talks about with the farmers uh, to raise the farmer spirits. And I think yeah, it, it's in service of the plot rather than like, we need Robert Downey Jr. to be funny in the scene. And like, yeah. it's in his contract that he needs like three jokes per like five minute span. So we got to make sure yeah, he has a joke yeah. at this point. That character really remind me of this advice a former boss gave me about, like, she let me sit in one time. It was an externship, so she let me sit in. She had all of us sit in, like, all the employees. We'd sit in on the uh, hiring of the next class of students. Mm -hmm. And I just thought she wanted our perspective on stuff, but really, she kind of explained... She and I developed a friendship. Like, she was kind of a mentor for me for a couple years. And she eventually told me, she's like, yeah a lot of my interviewing process is just seeing if it's someone I can stand being in an office with for multiple hours at a time. Yeah. Now, that does a very interesting perspective. That's something a lot of people don't tell you. It's something I was not really cognizant of early on in my like employment history was that, Oh, it's a meritocracy. If I have the ability to do the work that they want me to do, I'll get hired. And it's like, well, no, you also have to realize like if you're a good fit for this, for these people, like and it's something I always approach now with any interview or even, you know, I guess it can extend to dating if you want, but like, I was very mindful. It's like, is this someone I actually want to be around less, let alone like work for. And, you know, I, I, it's really kind of helped me turn down a couple job opportunities that I think were, would have been really bad situations to get into because it just was like bad vibes or the person was annoying or something like that. So it, it kind of was an interesting perspective where it's like, you don't see that enough. I'm just kind of repeating myself now, but just like, having a, someone around who's just good vibes and good for morale and that how that like is a net positive for everybody, even though they may not be the most skilled. I thought that was just sort of an interesting perspective to have. Yeah. Well, and I've been told like through my career, like when you interview at a place, you're also interviewing them. Mm-hmm. But the problem for that for me is personally that um, they're going to be on their best behavior. So it's very hard to tell what it's going to be like in the day-to-day sort sure. of trenches. You know, I'm working on a contract at a place now. And at first I was like, that's great. It's a contract. If I don't like it, like it's going to be over in a few months and that's fine. But now like I actually really like working at the place. And so I'm trying to like finagle it into like a more full-time or long-time position. Um, And so now it's like, oh, I've given the place a chance. It's actually been like pretty good. And now I would like to stay. And so I got to figure that out. So that's, I guess, the other. Well, have you considered creating a banner for your coworkers? <laughs> uh, no, but I did get a, like, I ordered some, like, cheap Chinese stuff off Amazon. 
it came with like a i guess a postcard i think that may be redundant actually <laughs> well it came with a postcard you know take take tov's comment as you will with two kittens on it uh that says are you proud of yourself today because i am so I've, I've been meaning to like take a picture of that and post that onto the team slack channel i want to talk about the banner that the samurai made yeah. because i thought that was interesting and also leads into my first question for you this episode mm -hmm. and so for anyone who hasn't seen the movie uh riddy mentioned it already but the the good morale samurai he makes a banner to sort of be like there to display when the eventual battle happens and wh what was it it's like six kind of uh circles o's or zeros yeah. circles for the six samurais a triangle for the one samurai who is not technically a samurai but pretends to be that's the toshira mafune character mm -hmm. and then a, uh was it was that a japanese symbol for the town was that what the very bottom of it yeah it's a phonetic character a syllabic character um for ta uh you know which is the first sound in in farm so uh yeah so that leads to my first question. If you had to create a banner that you would fly in battle, what would you put on your banner? <laughs> well, uh, I've restarted Animal Crossing, and this question has come up again because you can make a flag in Animal Crossing. Oh, well. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've had to think about, like, well, what do I what do I want to make as my banner? Whose banner do I want to steal? I don't know. I, I mean, for pure, like, whatever, like... I mean, if you wanted to like intimidate the enemy, like I guess like dragon or something, you know, something sort of Japanese and and East Asian that that maybe would strike fear into the heart of your enemy. But honestly, um, if it's like representing me, like maybe a clown face, maybe like a comedy <laughs> de, del dell'arte clown face on a flag, or or like Cheetos, I don't know, something like that. Cheetos yeah like if you're gonna represent like myself then maybe something you know ridiculous and and bad for you you're just gonna leave an orange powder on their fingers if they try yeah. and touch you <laughs> I, uh, I i recently found out that uh, i don't know if you saw the uh show mission hill it was by a long like, time ago yeah it was by two of the um simpson showrunners that ran on i think the wb for like 13 episodes before it was canceled, but I found out they had actually written like 18 episodes. And so I started reading the scripts over the weekend. Um, cause that's the kind of cool dude that I am. Um, <laughs> and they were talking about like, uh, Dorito breath as like being, you know, toxic. Uh, so it just reminded me of like, yeah, like that is my major weapon. That's what I bring to your battle is, you know, sort of you threw a trident or well, at least with like Cheeto dust. How yeah, about I, you, I was thinking this over. Yeah. For some reason, I've always been uh, attracted is not the right word because I don't want to have sex with it. But I've really always found uh, the mongoose a very interesting animal. And I think it <laughs> really kind of I think it really goes back to watching uh, the video, the cartoon of Ricky Ticky Tavi in middle oh, yeah. school. But for some reason, I've always been I, I've always liked the message of that story about like this mongoose who finds this family and fights all these deadly s snakes knowing that's probably going to die but it's like it's kind of like you may kill me but i'm going to kill you too type energy yeah 
and for some reason i've always really enjoyed the the kind of like the symbolism of the mongoose i always feel like that's just sort of like this animal where it's like it looks cute and cuddly but will like viciously like protect what it yeah like what well, but even then, it's only like when so, snakes cobra, attack yeah, it's yeah. not like an in, yeah it's not like an inherently violent animal so i i don't know for some reason that always kind of spoke to me so i feel like if i ever had to go in the battle and make a banner to kind of try and intimidate my enemies uh i would use the mongoose but then i'd also have to hope that my enemies have so, some sort of literary background would be <laughs> like oh no i've read ricky dicky tabby too we should we should leave this guy alone i think it's a weasel no it's a mongoose um but that actually made me wonder i i actually looked this up yesterday to see if there was a superhero anywhere named mongoose <laughs> but there's not well, we can start our own comic uh, line and then hope to be bought out by Marvel and they'll incorporate... It may be a little too clunky. I think when people hear it, they may think like it's a man who's a goose. So <laughs> okay. I feel like maybe that's why. I well, wonder if that's why there's no uh, mongoose superheroes. That could be his major like um, enemy is that people constantly confusing him for the man goose uh, who is a different superhero and or villain. Yeah, the... The mongoose is the one who goes around and, and fights enemies, and then the man goose with a hyphen is the one who goes around and takes shits on everybody's car. Yeah, he's like he's um he's uh the convenience store bandit guy for Spider Gwen to uh the man goose, non hyphen. His, his whole thing is that he he follows people after they go to the car wash, and then when they get home, he just takes a big old shit on their windshield and smears it all over the place. <laughs> Uh, see, buy us Marvel, <laughs> buy these ideas. Um, also, you and the mongo uh, the mongoose have similar body types as well. So, also, I think that is it. Yeah, we're um, well we're for just... doing animals. Like mine would be the penguin because it shows the enemy that I have very little to fight back with. I'm very awkward. I could maybe bite them if it got to close quarters fighting, and I will probably run away given the opportunity you know I, so. I i should have messaged one of my friends to see if uh mongoose is a subsect of of uh gay men culture because i know it wasn't <laughs> uh was it what did he used to refer to himself as an otter does that sound right i think that's i think that's one of them yeah yeah i can't remember it's been a couple of years since he explained the different groupings to me but i think he was i know i know bears i think yeah. everybody knows bears everyone knows bears then twin Bears, twinks. I want to say he was an otter, but uh, it's been a couple of years, so I can't remember for sure. I've heard. So I wonder. Him. Yeah, so maybe a mongoose is like some subsect where it's like uh, a violent otter. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you can, uh, as we mentioned on the last podcast, we've opened our own Instagram, so maybe you can put it on Instagram and have a picture of a mongoose and and ask if. Um, there are any good animal names for the uh, for gay subcultures that we should know? God, I wish I was knowledgeable for how to use Instagram. I feel like just such an old idiot anytime I log on now. <laughs> uh, it's better than Blue Sky. Let me tell you that. Well, it doesn't mean it's good. I'll no, say that. that's true. <laughs> it's easier to understand than Blue Sky. Yeah, so just like quickly moving on with the plot, they recruit six samurai. And then um, Toshiro, Toshiro, Toshiro Mufune's character wants to join. He says he's a samurai. He gives them a sort of documentation about his lineage. 
and they see who he is on the lineage and it says he's Kikuchio who's 13 years old. Um, I also learned this time watching the movie that Kikuchio is a girl's name. So there was something that was lost on me um, several times mm. watching the movie. So not only is a 13 year old's name uh, given the date of birth, it's also a girl's name. So it's like a chrysanthemums forever or for a thousand years of chrysanthemums or something. I looked it up afterwards. Oh, I was going to say it's like a reverse Mulan. Yeah. Well, and that's, he, he seems especially put out every time they call him Kikuchio. And so that I think maybe added some more flavor to that, but um, the six samurai like leave him and head towards the village. He follows along sort of like the, the, the bad penny that you can't get rid of. And the samurai get to the village and they're greeted by silence. Like no one is out there to see them. Uh, Monzo, the character who cut his daughter's hair, that had an effect on the entire village because Monzo met the samurai. And so they all think the samurai yeah, are going to come like steal from them or rape their women or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, and Kikuchio sounds the alarm for bandits, has the village people, the farmers begging the samurai for help and crosses that kind of class divide in that way. And so kind of gets inducted as a samurai into the group. Yeah. He's annoying, but endearing at the same time. Like he, he, he's really gruff. And I think they, his introduction to the story was like, oh, this drunk guy beat the shit out of 10 guys at the bar last night. So mm -hmm. like they kind of set up that he actually can hold his own, but then he ends up being pretty clever. Like you said, like he sets off the alarm, making everybody think that the bandits are coming. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, samurai, samurai, save us. And he, he, he ends up mocking the entire town. He's like, I forget, he's, he had all these good insults. I should have kept track of them. But he's like, he's like, you globs of mud. Like, yeah. you, you, you're, you don't want anything to do with us until you need us. Like, that's not how this is going to work. Like, he's kind of like guilts them into being nice to them, which is really kind of a clever move. And he has several moves like that throughout the film where he just kind of like, he just knows how to deal with these farming communities. Because as we find out later, he actually grew up in one. Yeah. And that's kind of like the big reveal for his sad story, uh, which I, uh, should we get, I uh, will hold on. We'll hold on to that. Well, I'm getting, I'm getting to it. Like, you know, the kind of plot yeah. wise, uh, eventually we come to like this, like very well, Toshiro Mufune's character, Kikuchio finds out the village has like stores of like samurai armor and, and um, spears and weapons um, that they took from fleeing samurai that, you know, they uh, finished off and, and took their stuff, essentially. Mm -hmm. And Kikuchio shows it to the samurai, and the six samurai are very put out by this. Like, they've all probably been in the position of having to run away from a battle, and, um, you know, they're not super thrilled that the villagers, you know, kind of finished off, like, the losing side and, and took their stuff. And then the Shirimifune has this, like, powerful sort of monologue where he insults the farmers like yeah they're greedy and they have stores of stuff they're not telling you about and essentially says like but who made them this way like it's bandits it's samurai like samurai come take their stuff and if there's a war going on and this mm -hmm. happened I, I promised myself i wouldn't get into like the japanese history part of stuff too much but you know it happened all the time like you know the villagers or whatever we're seeing it honestly right now and the various conflicts in the world they'll take the stuff from like the normal people and take women take foods take all that stuff and so that's why the farmers are the way they are. And he sort of guilts the samurai in the other direction of you still want to help these people because if they're acting selfish and they are like scavenging from like the bones of, of you know, whoever's left, 
it's because they have to do it, you know, given their sort of life. And Kanbei makes the, you know, sort of realization that Kikuchio grew up as a farmer or was a farmer's son or whatever. And, mm -hmm. you know, this monologue is amazing acting by Toshiro Mifune. And then he gets angry when Kanbei sort of calls him out on his background. And there's a shot of his feet, like in the doorway. And like the, like the amount of acting that Mifune does with his let, like, you know, basically his feet, like it's, you could see, you can imagine like how the rest of his body is, even though you just see his feet sort of leaving the door. And it's like this realization and then this like embarrassment almost. And for him to like act that out, we like, I don't love feet. I don't have a foot fetish as we talked about earlier, <laughs> but just the amount of acting that the guy did from the knees down was sort of amazing. And so like, we come to this point where the samurai and the villagers sort of understand each other in a more honest kind of way. And Kikuchio is able to like bridge that gap because he has sort of a foot in both worlds. Mm -hmm. He is pretending to be a samurai. I think maybe in this time period, it was actually somewhat, you know, easier to cross class divisions at this point. But this is, you know, what he wants to be. So he looks down on the farmers some, but he also understands the the hypocrisy of kind of the samurai and being like a ruling elite and things like that. And so uh, he gets them together and we see the village and the samurai coming together to start training to, to fend off these bandits. There's an intermission long enough to take a bio break, which is probably really needed in this very long movie. <laughs> and then we see, uh, I think I can't remember if it's before or after the intermission, but Kambe has a map of the village and then he uses that sort of like go around the village shore of the defenses see where like if he were a bandit where would he attack and sort of make changes and decide on sort of strategy there and i was going to say like i love it when a movie sort of shows you complex geography um, gives you a sense of place and then sort of does that in a simplified way so we have the map on this in this movie we have the the banner or the flag that we talked about earlier and we have Kambe's list of like the number of bandits that he crosses out, like as they like get, you know, kind of kill individual bandits. And so, you know, Star Wars does it, the original Star Wars does this, like when the Death Star is going to sh you know, blow up, uh, uh, is it Yavin 4? Yeah, Yavin 4. And they both have like clocks, like counting down when the Death Star is going to hit the planet, essentially. And, you know, this is why I say I really like there isn't a lot of fat on this movie. I watched Magnificent Seven as well, and it didn't have this part of it where it was showing you the village, I don't think, if I remember correctly. And so you don't get that same sense of like place or simplified sort of, and especially as a graphic designer sort of person or a UX designer, I really do like it when you simplify it down for me so that I can understand it and you, you know, kind of come back to it. So there's like a running tally or almost like a, like a HUD almost for like the plot of the movie and what's going on. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't think about that. But yeah, it is very good at like setting up the geography because it's like, oh, the mountains are to the west, to the east is the forest, and the, you know, and you, so you, when things are happening, you are oriented. I didn't even, it was so seamlessly done. I didn't even notice it. It really like, yeah, like having seen like Magnific Magnificent Seven, like, you know, obviously it's a shorter movie because uh, God, he's going to sit down for three and a half hours and watch this film. But, you know, they cut out a lot of that stuff, which I, it made it harder to like, follow i think anyway you know they go through and and this is where katsushiro the youngest samurai the one who sort of tried to apprentice himself to kambe 
is is playing in the woods <laughs> with flowers and finds a boy, quote unquote, who's not drilling and not practicing for um, essentially the military. And he gets mad and wrestles him, her down and finds out the two genders, the people with boobs and the people without boobs and fig <laughs> figures out that uh, this is actually a girl uh, who's hiding um, uh, from the village who's hiding. And, and they start to, the, a romance sort of blossoms, blossoms from there. And I would say the other thing that I hadn't really realized about this movie is how, what's the word I'm looking for? Slutty is not the right word, but it's kind of the word I want to use. Cause like, Shino, the girl is the one who's like trying to move like the relationship into the physical realm or whatever. And she expects to be ravished and you can kind of tell she's like kind of scared and then kind of like into it. And... Yeah. She had that line where it's like, why aren't you acting like a samurai? Like she was yeah. kind of waiting for him to kiss her or something and he doesn't make a move. And then she says something like that. So yeah, it was, it was one of those things where she was interested was receptive but i guess he felt like he was actually trying to like uphold like an honor code and didn't want to do anything and that upset her yeah and so that was an interesting take where it's like i guess it was just an extension of like this guy is like legitimately trying to be a good guy try to kind of i mean i don't know what the you know the unspoken virtues of a samurai are but whatever they are i felt like he was trying to kind of uphold them in that moment yeah, and I also, I mean, also think that like she expected, you know, the samurai to be like sort of thugs that they, you know, the sort of the the samurai they met in the in the town or whatever, and that wasn't the case. And she was sort of as surprised as he was, um, but he, yeah, he, I was definitely like a naive sort of character, and I think that comes through in his ideas about battle and warfare and about, you know sex and relationships and then also like this like weird sort of love triangle he has with um the really talented samurai kuzo mm -hmm. well, like, that was just like a giant talent crush yeah yeah but i mean tv tropes was like they're sort of like is he in love with shino is he in love with kuzo or is it sort of this weird love time triangle and i could I, I definitely took it as a talent crush early on but i do wonder i mean you always think about sort of the you know I don't want to say homoerotic. Yeah, the, yeah, like. Well, the yeah, the the subtext of of yeah, there obviously were gay men at the time. Yeah, there had to have been gay samurais. So, yeah. yeah, the subtext of it. I didn't read it that way, but I could totally see people seeing it that way. Yeah, and I think that's you know, it's a totally legitimate take yeah. on that on that those two characters' interactions for sure. Yeah, and at least like going yeah. in one direction, uh, if not both, but. Um, I, I, you know, this is, this is a movie I could talk endlessly on, on about, but I don't want to like get too bogged down in the details, but, um, they're preparing for, you know, battle with the bandits. There's the grandmother, the old grandmother who like we learn about through. Shino. Oh, that old lady who just wanted to die and die quickly. That was so yeah. sad. I'd forgotten completely about her. Yeah. She's sort of terrifying. And then later they capture a bandit alive and you know, they sort of interrogate him for information and the samurai are like, we can't kill him. He's given up. Like he's, he's, you know, essentially waved the white flag and the villagers yeah. are sort of understandably sort of ready to, to, to rip his throat out. And then the grandmother comes and kills him herself. 
and even the samurai like we can't do anything about this um yeah but yeah that was terrifying um and i can i mean i see it from both sides it's just sort of i think it goes to show and i, I think the movies it sort of at pains to show that no one has clean hands in this whole thing like the villagers yeah, i think that's definitely yeah. the case yeah and it's yeah. you know no. re, oh go ahead sorry Oh, no, I was going to say, I, I have this one quote. I'm, I'm not sure if we've gotten past the scene or not, but the interactions between the samurai and the town folk is, is one of the more interesting aspects of the film as the story goes on. Mm -hmm. Because, like, so many of the townspeople, like, have suffered in a variety of ways. Either, like, their stuff's been stolen or the house has been destroyed or loved ones killed or kidnapped. And, mm -hmm. like, there's one recurring townsmen who that's one of the samurai a couple of samurais like oh you need to get a wife you need to get a wife and yeah. anytime they mention his wife he just like throws a hissy fit and storms off and yeah. like obviously to the viewer who has any sort of like story sophistication like <laughs> or if you just think you've ever seen a movie yeah. you realize oh this guy did have a wife he doesn't now we don't know why and but i think there was this one i i took a few minutes to try and find this and i feel like it perfectly explains why seven samurai can get lumped into the pretense of our show and it was the samurai uh heihachi yeah talking to him like he goes and he goes to talk to this this uh this Harbor, peasant yeah. alone yeah yeah and he he this is the the quote he says I think talking is a good thing. Whatever your burden may be, talking can ease it. You, for example, seem pretty tight-lipped, but if you're suffering, you shouldn't bottle it up. Letting your feelings out bit by bit can work wonders. I felt like that was yeah. like the most pro-therapy piece of dialogue that we have heard so far in all the movies we've watched under this umbrella of sad man films. And this, <laughs> for it to come up in ostensibly a war movie, I was like, wow, this is really fucking great yeah and and i think it does go to it does go to show that it is a movie about kind of reaching across class division and i think we've seen sort of the farmers talk to each other in a frank sort of way and we've seen the samurai talk to each other in a frank sort of way but we haven't seen the cross you know class sort of division and it's almost like obviously you know well not obviously because there is actually like a, a black samurai that would have been maybe even alive at this point. I looked up the year this movie would have taken place and essentially like a Portuguese trader brought a black person to Japan and uh, the warlord Oda Nobunaga took such a shine to him that he basically like brought him in as a, a samurai essentially. And we don't know a ton about his life, but in, instead of like racial divisions, like what we're seeing here is like how we would re we act to like a racial division in the U.S. is this class division in Japan. And so um, it is like that kind of statement of we can talk across this major sort of, you know, to me, what seems like a very artificial divide, but you know, this divide in, in class. And I think I mentioned it during when we talk about Akiru, but I'll, I'll say it again here too. This is the last movie that Kurosawa does that um, really has that message of people coming together, especially across that kind of divide and being able to accomplish something after this it's like uh it's all shit from here on out in the sense of like either they don't accomplish what they want to do or it doesn't it isn't because people came together it's because an individual person usually like did something so 
we see kind of Kurosawa getting disillusioned with like the idea that people can come together and uh, accomplish a goal. Yeah, no, it was just very interesting. I thought that there was like this, this empathy and this kind of like outsider perspective on like trying to help someone deal with their grief when they obviously haven't. And I feel like that's something that we don't see even in modern times a lot. It's usually people like silently suffering and, you know, in the, the whole, uh, like the, I know with my, with my dad, he used to refer to like, uh, to dealing with pain, with, with like physical pain, it'd be like John waning it. Yeah. And by John waning medical issues, he like, well, let me try to think, trying to word this, uh, which is such, he, he believed in the concept of like John waning it, which was just like, if something's bothering you, you just ignore it and like tough it out. And just kind of personal anecdote to show how stupid that is. He ended up with kidney failure because of it, because he had these pains that physical pains that he just ignored and rather go to a doctor and get treated. He put it off for so long where his kidneys shut down. So uh, they have this kind of counterbalancing message from 1954, where it's just like, oh, it's okay to talk about your problems. It's actually helpful. I was just kind of like, it's just something I did not expect to see in this movie. And I just thought it was like, oh, this perfectly explains why we're talking about that this week. Yeah. Well, you know, we ask every episode, like, what did we learn from this movie? And so rarely is it like so nicely put on a plate for us and, you know, served. Uh, Usually we have to tease it out a little bit, but um, I'm going to say something that I think is maybe a little bit vulnerable here and say that, you know, again, I saw this movie at a very formative time in high school. And to me, like this movie was like a movie about what it is to be a man. And I think it's very different from most definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of the other, like, cultural stuff we get and not even like you know 1950s japan but even like 1990s early 2000s america like we did i think everything basically we consumed said like to be a man you've got to like put up with your conflicted or tragic baggage and not talk about it and you can't like you know boys don't cry and and all this stuff and we literally Mm -hmm. see like kikuchio crying when he a when he like talks about his or they figured out his background as a farmer and then be like later on in the movie, like the old village elder and his family end up dying in the, the, the watermill house that can't be saved because it's outside of the, the borders of the, the, the river that runs through the village essentially. And he saves the baby is the only like family member he saves and he stops and he just starts crying, holding this baby because his story is exactly like that. Like probably his village was like, burned down or something like that he was saved his family dies and you know as a farmer like that was his sort of thing and and i don't think you see that in movies even you know as as progressive as you know the mcu is for like superhero fantasy movies for essentially for men for the most part not to Mm. uh degrade the you know many women who love the mcu or whatever but did Captain America ever cry? I don't think even like his best friend is now uh, a Russian assassin. We don't really see him cry. And I do think it's a very sort of limited human experience that we give to men. And, and you know, when we, people talk about feminism, I think the other side of it is that when we make these roles for women, we also conversely, by contrast, or however, make these roles for men. And we're both stuck in these silos that sort of 
shortchange the entire human experience. Yeah. Yeah. I got nothing to add to that. I think that's really well said. Moving on, Shino and Katsushiro's relationship continues, and Katsushiro eventually gets his dick wet. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Take that, feminism. Yeah, take that. Um, No, and I I mean, I sort of get it. And, you know, this is like, I I, I put this note earlier, and then it actually happens a little bit later in the movie, but it's right. I don't want to cut you out too much, but like the context of it is the the t- they're two really young people and she's like we could die tomorrow yeah, right exactly, he's like yes, yeah. yeah and so it's like context it's like well if we're gonna die i kind of want to have this experience before i go out that that's how kind of i took it it was like yeah. obviously like they're young people of course they're horny but yeah. also they're like there's the added context where it's like this may be our last night alive so let's you know have no inhibitions let's just do it yeah, exactly. And and so that does happen. And I think either Kambe or, or Shichiroji or one of the samurai sort of says this to Manzo, who's upset <laughs> about this turn of events. Well, uh, he beats his daughter when he finds out. It's like yeah. one of the more disturbing scenes that we've seen in any of the films we've covered so far. Yeah. No, this and the haircutting were both very sort of unpleasant to watch. And I, I admit, like, I turned, like, I, I, I went back to my notes doc when he starts beating his daughter and, you know, calls her damaged goods and stuff like that. And obviously that's not the attitude uh, we have today, generally speaking, in, in Western society. And, and the samurai try to explain it to him and, and he will not hear it. But yeah, I, I get it. And I think TV tropes or maybe Wikipedia sort of mentioned that by the end of this movie, Katsushiro as this young, naive samurai, sort of his illusions and his enthusiasm for both sex and battle seem to have lessened after both experiences like he doesn't seem as 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 thrilled about either thing i don't know i didn't get that much about sex but he did seem very i didn't know if he seemed guilt my guilt was like originally what i thought he was feeling but i don't know if you know was he having like second thoughts about was it worth it or not i'm not super clear but that is one i guess reading of it or one interpretation i sort of took it that he felt bad that he got her beaten the girl was going to be a pariah now yeah and it's a little it was frustrating to watch because i do i mean once the battle's over the story's pretty much over we don't know what becomes of these characters yeah but it was my understanding that he kind of came from well seven uh seven samurai eight or like colon eight like eight samurai so but no i think i took it that he was like he kind of wanted maybe it's just me projecting onto him. I, I felt like he wanted to take her with him and leave the town, but she yeah. was resigned to staying. Cause that after the battle, she walks by him while going out to the fields to the harvest, the crops with the other townspeople. Yeah. And she just looks at him and runs away. Yeah. And I think in the Wikipedia summary of the movie, it's like he took, he realized that there, there was no chance for a relationship with her. So it was a, it was a complicated scene for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and it's one of the more tragic parts, but you know, I, I, I'm glossing over the battle stuff. I, I don't. Is there anything you want? I want to make one last point, but yeah, but, go ahead. Uh, yeah, if, talk about yeah. We can. Well, well, I just want to kind of jump to the ending where the the leader, the de facto leader, uh, Kambe, you know, the townsfolk prevail. They have kind of minimal 
casualties, like four of the samurais end up dying in usually pretty tragic ways. Usually like helping people or they get like shot, they get shot with that thinking that this the battle's over it's like it's always like kind of preventable ways like one yeah the first samurai died because he was rescuing a guy from running into a burning house and the farmer pushes him and the samurai falls and hits his head on a rock and he ends up dying from that so it's like it's all really kind of sad preventable deaths in a way and so but at so at the end you know the the young guy realizes that the woman he he slept with has no desire to have a, anything to do with him anymore like so you know everybody won and the townspeople are singing and they're out harvesting their crops and they're in a good mood like the remaining samurai are all miserable and standing by the graves of their colleagues and yeah. and in combat is just kind of like victory and battles for the peasants and it's just like the perfect embodiment of a pyrrhic victory where like yes they beat the the bad guys but like they lost their friends nothing they get no tangible good from the situation it's just kind of like we won but who cares and it's kind of like such a i don't i couldn't help but wonder if this was like kurosawa's kind of take on world war ii i mean great mm-hmm. japan didn't win world war ii but just like the fact of of war in general where it's just kind of like everything's just a pyrrhic victory you even when you win there's no real victor necessarily so it could definitely end on a very sombering note yeah, I mean, I do think there, there is value about sort of we protected something that wouldn't have been wouldn't have survived otherwise. But yeah, like I do think Chris Sow is definitely a humanist. I think it's been a long time since I've read some of like interviews with him and stuff like that. But he is very anti-war. Not surprising, sort of given his you know growing up and during mm-hmm. the, the war, and we see it here like. It's not pretty, like, as you said, most of the samurai die in sort of, not dumb ways, but, you know, sort of, except for Kikuchio, like, none of them really die in, in you know, super heroic ways. And uh, and even, you know, Kikuchio's death is, is heroic, but still ugly. Like, none of the battles are, like, beautifully done. And we see Kurosawa do beautiful battles in different other movies, but this one is not. And it's muddy and sloppy and people are just getting stabbed and and there's no sense of like, you know, trying to make war beautiful or anything like that. And I do think you end up sort of going through and realizing that like you had this experience with your colleagues, you know, your, the people around you and you lose a lot of them because it's war. And, you know, if I were to take something from this movie, I think it would be that, that, you know, is it worth the cost? And, you know, I, that's not a no. I'm not like trying to angle for a no answer to that. Um, I do think they do something that is worthwhile and valuable, but they do it at such a cost that it 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 doesn't help them. And has it really been worth it? We you know, we lose like a lot of the characters that we think are interesting. We they're gone for for us and for the you know remaining three samurai. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the the line I had in my notes I mentioned earlier, where it's like by protecting others you save yourself, and like. In essence, they they do sort of save the samurai as a whole. And, and, yeah, like you know, yeah, yeah, like they do sort of like save themselves in that like they did sort of create some meaning for themselves as as a, like a band of kind of roaming roaming warriors who didn't really have anything to do. Mm. They did find a purpose. They set a goal. They did achieve their goal. They suffered the consequences, and it's sort of you know, it's like you said, it's, like, it's not 
that they should not have done it. I think they're all glad they did, but it's kind of like we did this, but it doesn't just because we achieved our goal and did the right thing. Doesn't mean it's, it's going to feel good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, the way that that war is portrayed here, you know, fur furthers that theme or, or sort of make sure that we understand that, Hey, like they did something. It's very human and flawed and, this ambivalence about war, I guess, is maybe the way that I want to put it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's... yeah. I did. I had some other short notes here. This was the most expensive movie ever made in Japan to that point. So it cost 500. Like I'm pulling this from TV trips. I knew I had heard it was most expensive, but it cost $500,000 to make and a year to produce. Most films at that time took one month to film and cost $70,000. This in Gojira, Godzilla, um, nearly drove Toho into bankruptcy. Thankfully not, but I just thought about that when they raided the bandit camp and then had that whole thing burned down. That's not like, okay, take two, like we can do another take of this. Or do you burn, oh, yeah. Yeah, you burn that building down, it's done. And then you have the three village homes that also get burned down. And it's like, well, you know, I thought of the uh, scene in the radioactive man movie Simpsons episode where they <laughs> shoot the uh, acid at a uh, Rainier Wolf castle and, and Millhouse isn't there. So yeah, hello. And, and I know the commentary mentioned like what, how detail oriented Kurosawa was. So like, obviously like if it was raining that day in the film, it was because Kurosawa wanted to train. Like he had a rain machine. It wasn't just cause it was a rainy day in Japan. It was part of what he was doing. And, the other thing I was going to note is, is Kambe shaves his head at the beginning of the movie and you can see it slowly see it growing back. So like even in a linear sense, and I can't imagine how difficult that must have made filming, but you see that hair coming back in sort of as the movie progresses. So like, again, very detail oriented. They called Kurosawa the emperor on set because um, he would do that kind of thing and make sure that it got done correctly. Yeah, I think, you know, Kikuchio's sort of, He's blundering and awkward and makes some stupid mistakes through the movie, but he really gets the class differences because he kind of has lived in both classes. He was born as a farmer. He's kind of pretended to be a samurai. And by the end of the movie, they accept him as one of their own. He is a samurai to them. And, and especially kind of given his last actions, getting shot and then standing up and killing the bandit kind of leader before yeah to save all the yeah. women and children yeah yeah, yeah I, I i thought he was by far the most fascinating character in this because early on he's just this insufferable drunk and i remember i thought to myself while watching it like why how was this my fune's kind of like big breakout role at least that's how i always understood it to be and then as the as the story went on i was like oh i get it this is a far more interesting multi multi-faceted character than just the drunk angry guy like there's so many so many things go on with that character and he has to do so many different things throughout like he ends up going from like this annoying piece of shit to a heroic piece of shit <laughs> and it's kind of like wow that's such a fascinating trajectory that someone that you kind of like you still find annoying but you you still love by the end of it it's just uh it was i i it was like yes this is why this actor is so good yeah and i was going to say that when you were talking about his character being like annoying and loud. And, you know, even in that one scene with the, the first scene with the, the grandma, um, he actually is like, don't you ever shut up. Like you're too loud. We're yeah. inside voices. Um, and I was going to say that I think we've all known someone who has like, if you looked into their background, like there's a lot of like 
baggage or trauma and they have a hard time sort of you know modulating themselves or not being the center of attention or you know some combination of all of those things and i and maybe even you know we've been those people at sometimes you know where we feel sort of slighted or or trauma is getting to us or you know outside of the group or whatever and he he takes it from that one dimensional clown to this kind of conflicted and tragic character who is kind of a dummy like you know he gets he gets yeah. uh Gorobe killed I think or one of the other samurai but then like we see him just like break down cuz he knows his stupidity honestly sort of got his his team member killed essentially and so he does a lot of both I mean this is like acting showcase for Shimura and Toshiro Mifune like just how much they bring to this movie is is it makes me very sad about you know, 90% of Japanese actors at this time, like, are now contemporarily, just how much talent is on display here. And, you know, I go to Japan and I turn on like a drama and it's like, oh my God, this is terrible. Well, it's just, you know, it's the ubiquity of be able to create now. Like, it's so much cheaper. I don't think as much mindfulness goes into what comes out where like back then there was such limited resources it's like we if we're doing something we got to really put some effort into it i don't think it's necessarily the case for a lot of uh movies and tv across the globe but that's, uh, I, I that's do a wanna, conversation I mean, for another day <laughs> is it though i kind of want to in, in in uh interrogate that statement a little bit just i know we've been talking for a little while but i do think sort of what we talked about where there's no second chance for that you know bandit layer burning down scene like you either get it right the first time or you're done um whereas like you know you look at something like i know when she hulk came out um people were saying oh they'll go back and like fix the cgi so that she hulk looks better and it's just mm-hmm. like are we not but i know so many like vfx editors like put their like so much time and effort into making the vfx for that movie or doctor strange or whatever and I don't think it's less effort necessarily, but I do think this idea of like practical effects and, you know, writing the movie that you direct and all of these things make it a different experience and that you have to commit more and you have to prepare more maybe. Yeah. And when I, when I say those comments, I'm not saying it at like the people like kind of on the ground, I'm saying more, I think of it more as like, at the studio level producer level and like you saw with the the strike this or last summer Mm. where you know they don't want to pay the writers and they don't want to pay the creatives like and it's you know this strong push towards reality television and a reliance on cgi yeah but even then that's you know we've talked about in previous episodes where like the lot of the via the virtual the vfx artists are treated poorly and they're not given the proper resources and they're kind of worked to the bone like it's not that they're not trying hard it's just sort of like it's sort of they're being exhausted to the point where i think any creative work people are going to care about it and put their all into it but it's almost kind of like reached abusive levels by some people i feel like from what i hear like and i think and i think that's really where it comes from it's just like it's not like okay we got to have it right we got it we, we got this one shot we got to make it look good i think some people you know the people who are in charge of the finances and the final say are just kind of like 
all right, let's, it's good enough. Let's just put it out. Who cares? And that, I think that's kind of what I was getting at is that it's not artist driven or creative driven as much as financially driven now. And I think that's where it kind of like, that's where the perspective I was coming from. Is not no, yeah, that and I totally get people that. I, aren't, I wouldn't expect yeah. you to like, you know, kind of piss on the writers or the uh, the uh, VFX people or anything like that. But I do. Yeah. I guess my question is that if you have to build that R two D two tin can and you have to have an actor in that C three PO costume, does it invest you more as like a director? versus like telling the vfx artists like do something like this and then getting you know getting to have dinner at olive garden or wherever hollywood's elite tend to like go have dinner yeah you know i i, I wonder it's it's, it's well i think that yeah. i think that kind of goes to the pay too because yeah. unless it's a passion project i think a lot of the vf the virtual effects people are just kind of like brought in to work on it and you know maybe they're a fan maybe they're not but I know just from some of the grunt work that I've done in the legal field, where it's like, oh, this pays shitty. Yeah, I'm going to give you the like the bare minimum effort here, yeah. and I think sometimes that comes across. So I think you know to to extrapolate my own personal experiences doing contract work that's kind of like grueling, mindless stuff. I feel like unless you feel like you're being adequately compensated and being treated with respect. Uh, you're probably not going to put your all into it. So I feel like that's sometimes what happens with virtual effects stuff. It's like people are sort of being taken for granted or, you know, if they're living abroad, they may be giving really, you know, very unhelpful pay rates. So it's kind of like, and that's why maybe the final product is not very good because someone's like, well, you don't care about me. Why should I care about this project? And then ultimately the entire piece suffers. And so I think that's kind of where I was coming from or it's just that unless people are really invested in their work and treated like they kind of matter in the process. It's not always going to matter. And that, you know, who knows, Kurosawa may have treated the, the, you know, the background actors poorly or treated them well, who knows And it, but it's, you know, it's hard, hard to compare because like, like then it's like the only option to film a burning house down was to burn a house yeah. down. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it's tough to, draw too many parallel at least doing it off the fly for me i yeah it's, uh, well you heard it here yeah. first children if you need to burn a house down burn that house down um no but i think it is like capitalism is broken essentially because like you know you don't feel any investment in the work that you're doing like it's not going to get you anywhere further or it's not going to no you're not you're not invested in the company or anything like that and i yeah i totally get it but you know i think about like CGI R2D2 in in the prequel trilogies versus like they hired a bunch of you know hobby droid builders to like build BB8 in in the sequel trilogy and mm-hmm. you know say what you will about the sequel trilogy like at least that droid looks pretty good you know it, yeah you had real yeah, people like that. working on it and and you know making even making the sounds so you know there's a there's a character there that that you know maybe R2D2 in the, the I have a few other notes, but did you have anything else? I actually wanted to play our very first game. Oh yeah, let's do it on the podcast. So, is there any, are there anything else? Any other points you want to touch on before we dive into that? I have a few very quick ones. Um, Kambe's introduction in in Seven Samurai is a shout out to Wyatt Earp beating up an armed drunk in My Darling Clementine. So I thought that was interesting. Oh. 
yeah, like very specifically a Western movie, um, like Western Western. And then, oh yeah, I mentioned in a couple of episodes before this that there's a there's a mistake in this movie. And normally this stuff kind of stuff doesn't get by Kurosawa, but I think when Gorobei gets shot and killed, those muskets could only hold one bullet at a time. But we hear like two shots go off in pretty quick succession. Mm. And by that time, the bandits only have one gun by our count. They have three and then the, the Kikuchio and Kyuzo have stolen one each. And so mm-hmm. there's no way that that shot could go off twice that quickly. They mentioned that in the commentary, and then um, I did some more digging just on like muskets and how that might work. And was there muskets? How do they work? How do they work? We are the insane clown posse, but just slightly more advanced. <laughs> <laughs> we 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 generally understand magnets, but we're the mentally disturbed clown posse. <laughs> yeah, uh, not on... as not as extreme. Road to recovery, clown posse. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's everything I th- I had. I think. Okay. Well, since we touched on it earlier, yes, that this is one of like the first famous instances of creating a team. We're going to create our own teams today from all the sad men of the movies we've watched so far. Okay. So I'm going to I'm going to share the screen with you, so you can see the list. Oh God, I hope it's like a bracket. It's a, it's a, it's a college basketball bracket, just with sad. Not men. quite. I was going to do like a, a draft where we just go back and forth. I was looking. I don't know if you saw me keep looking at my desk. I was trying to see if I could find a coin somewhere. I couldn't find it. Okay. Can you see that? Here it comes. Yes. I see your list. Okay. So for the listeners, Riddy and I are going to have a draft to create our own individual teams of sad men that if we were had to defend a small rural town, <laughs> this is who we'd want helping us. And so the characters that we have to choose from are Gary King from The World's End, Bob Harris from Lost in Translation, Viago from What We Do in the Shadows, Ben Mathias from Haunted Mansion, Father Karras from The Exorcist, Steve Zizou from The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, Guido Anselmo from Eight and a Half, George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life, Tony Stark from Iron Man 3, <laughs> C.C. Baxter from The Apartment, Kanji Watanabe from Ikiru, Mr. Chow from In the Mood for Love, and just to get us to a round number, we have Kambe, the leader from Seven Samurai, and Kikuchio from Seven Samurai, the aforementioned lovable asshole hero. So uh, do you have a coin nearby or anything that we can use to to flip to decide who goes first? I have everything but a coin here, it seems like. Yeah, I felt like I had the same, same. I have a Japanese copy of Nintendogs, Shiba Inu and Friends, plus cats, if that would help. Oh, maybe I... Aha! I do, in my tool stuff, I have a penny. All right, well, flip it and, you know, we'll do like uh, football style. You call heads or tails and, you know, if it lands on what you call, you go first. And if not, I'll go first. All right. Okay, I'll call heads. It is Tails. I don't know if you can see that, but it is Tails. Okay, so I have first pick. From this list, then, I will take the obvious choice and choose Tony Stark, <laughs> Iron Man, for my for my team to defend a small rural town, because for obvious reasons. I think you could probably stop there, but um, yeah. <laughs> uh, he was going to be my first choice, too, and it reminds me of those commercials where where it's the kids picking for basketball and charles barkley shows up and they're like it's you barkley 
or or that Simpsons where the ringers show up and Ralph keeps picking them. I choose Jose Canseco. Oh, the, the softball. Yes, wonderful, <laughs> one of the all-time classic episodes. Okay, Tony Stark's off the board. Now it's your choice. I'm going to go Father Karras because it looks like he can get things done. He was a boxer. He was a boxer. And That's true. He, you know, and he did take on like a demonic force. I mean, that's that's no uh, that's not nothing. <laughs> Especially compared to some of these people. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Father Karras is off the board. Can we before we, second... we move on? Could you remind me, Viago is um, uh, Taika Waititi. That, that was character? the Taika character. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The uh, the effete was he German? Maybe. I can't remember. He was somewhere from Europe, Eastern yeah. Europe, I think. Okay, let me see. My second pick, who will I choose? Hmm. You know, I think I will go with Kambe from our movie today, Seven Samurai. He's got the leadership qualities. He's got the strategy. He kind of... He'll keep Tony Stark uh, in mind. Yeah, and... You know he he he's a man. He just look at him and be like, "I'm I I, I trust you. Listen to what you say." Yeah. All <laughs> right. So Kambe's off the board. We we often refer to him as the Warring States period Captain America. Yeah, he's kind of filling the same role as Captain America on this uh, sad man Avengers team that we're assembling. Um, I was going to note that we've done this many episodes. It's felt like so many more. <laughs> Uh, I don't see what George Bailey has done. He's what he whined a lot, but I don't really, I don't see. He, and he doesn't come with the with the Clarence, right? It's just him. Yeah, just George. Clarence All wasn't right. sad. I'm gonna go with Mr. Chow. I still need someone to fall in love with someone else in the village, and if nothing else, he can <laughs> he can do that. We saw I, I was thinking that he'd be good just like have him look longingly and sad at the at the bandits and they just fall yeah. in love with him and be like oh man well i mean Let's... between him and uh tashira mifune we've got like two super hunks here oh yeah there's some sex appeal going on with these sad guys mm -hmm. uh, let me see like all right third choice for me hmm you know, I'm going to double up and I'm going to take Kanji Watanabe from Ikiru. Uh, keep the actor on my team. Two roles. That'll cause confusion. People be like, what? But well, also... He can really get through... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. He can just stare at people with his sad stomach cancer face and get them to acquiesce. <laughs> I mean, he he got the Yakuza to back down. I mean, yeah. all he did was just look, look sad. So, you know, he's got some sort of superpower going there so i'm gonna keep him on the team it's a real hangdog face number one but number two you never know when you'll have to like deal with bu bureaucracy in this in this uh fictional uh village protection scenario and so he would be the man to do that i think that's an excellent point he he knows how to achieve goals get things done he knows how to grease the wheels so that's that's another added aspect for that character okay third choice for you third choice for me i'm gonna i'm gonna go into left field a little bit here and speaking of attractive man uh ben matthias from haunted mansion Ooh, well he was a scientist so he's got to have some value yeah I, it seemed like he was a good planner 
and um you know uh he built that ghost capture machine so that was pretty good so he could you know he could maybe be a macgyver on the team yeah he'd have some value especially like maybe he could get the ghost to fight the bandits or at least scare them off something like yeah. that i think there's some I mean, if we're, if we're, if we're doing game. that, I wasn't going to say it, but if we're doing that, maybe he could also introduce me to Rosario Dawson, so. <laughs> yeah, he's like, this is my old war buddy. Yeah. Yeah, just okay, like Kambe. Let me see. <laughs> yeah. All right, here we go. Who's left? We got, so for people listening, we still have Gary King from The World's End, Bob Harris from Lost in Translation, Viago from What We Do in the Shadows, Steve Zizou from Life Aquatic, Guido Anselmo from Eight and a Half, George Bailey from A Wonderful Life, CC Baxter from The Apartment, and Kikuchio from Seven Samurai. And as I was going through that, I just had an idea I had not had while making this list. I'm going with Viago because he is a fucking vampire. Granted, yeah. he can only really fight at night, but he's the undead he just i could just send him to the bandit camp and have him you know kind of suck some of their blood and you know that kind of takes him down by a war of attrition yeah he was gonna be my next pick for that reason is that you know vampire powers why the hell not yeah i'm surprised he actually he lasted that long now i think about it he probably should have been one of the our first picks because like he can't really die i don't think unless they got like garlic or sunlight, sunlight. <laughs> yeah well, I'm. I feel like he'd screw it up somehow, Viago would, and I feel the same way about Kikuchio. Is he did get at least one person killed, and, and maybe, yeah, like he got at least one samurai killed, so that's no good. Um, I'm gonna go with Zisu based on that like final action sequence in Life Aquatic. I was debating that because he has experience fighting pirates which yeah. i guess is just like the water version of bandits <laughs> uh-huh. all right steve zizu's off the board also he has a gun i don't think these other guys really have oh a gun. yeah that's true yeah okay so let me see we've got gary king bob harris guido george bailey cc baxter and kikuchio hmm i i don't should i should i Think out loud. I guess so, because this is a podcast. Yeah. Gary Better King, than hiding the ball from Gary, the, the Yeah, I Gary guess. King can fight, but he's an annoying drunk. I mean, so and is Kikuchio. Gonna... Yeah, yeah. So we got two kind of annoying drunks left who can fight. Bob Harris, I think that character's backstory was he was an action movie star earlier in life. Guido is a director. Yeah. George Bailey is george bailey cc baxter he's just like a tax man hmm let me see uh, i got i got the muscle i've got the leadership i've got the emotional heart i've got the european what <laughs> who's your emotional I use heart? to round out my team kanji watanabe from okay Ikiru. got it uh hmm uh you know, I'm going to take a, a flyer on Guido. I think okay. his directorial skills, like maybe he could make a make some sort of like in the movie in eight and a half, he made that giant scaffolding for the set. Maybe he could make some sort of set that could like distract the bandits, and it could be like a blazing saddle scenario where he makes a big <laughs> town and 
and leads them there and they then we kind of have the counterattack after that mm-hmm. oh, guido's off the board plus he looked good in a suit he did look good in a suit i, I can't disagree with that for sure so mm-hmm. yeah I'll, I'll speak out loud a little bit and i am thinking about heachi in seven samurai and having that person that like maybe not a good fighter but brings like the levity to the group and and helps maybe uh you know raise people's spirits and morale so i'm trying to think between cc baxter and gary king i think gary Mm. king is more of a fuck up and so i do envision a situation where he gets someone killed although maybe he he would also have a creative way to fight the bandits as well especially if the bandits are robot aliens he bob harris may have some advantage in that i mean he was able to charm a young scarlett johansson so maybe he could like charm the bandits and the yeah but so is colin alone. jost too so i don't know if yeah good point <laughs> i mean i actually kind of like colin jost <laughs> uh that may be the most controversial thing you've said on this podcast. <laughs> it probably is at least on weekend update i haven't seen his like anything else um i'm gonna go cc baxter i i think he he cared for uh what's your face and uh i think he can be funny well that's a good point the, i i was going to avoid cc at all costs because i felt like he would just like let the bandits do what they want but i forgot about his caregiving skills he was very attentive and helpful kind of uh take care of mrs Ku- or miss kulik in that film mm-hmm. so i guess he would be good in like a nursing role if anybody got hurt he could tend to them so that's a good yeah. call all right cc's off the board leaving the apartment <laughs> that leaves us with gary king bob harris george bailey and Kikuchio. hmm all right i think it's down to gary king or Kikuchio. Mm, i'll go with Kikuchio. i found him he's annoying but also like still kind of funny and he also uh is uh, he's got that wild card element to him where it's like you don't know if he's gonna ruin things but he also may save the day so i'll take he's a good him fighter just for the yeah i, I wanted to say it like again like our third simpsons reference for the day but when bart is trapped in the well and marge's like sting is digging and and Marge is like, I- I've never heard Bart listen to your music. And Homer's like, shut up. He's a good digger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got to get Sting on this list at some point. Yeah. Okay, it's back to you. Uh, now, <laughs> we're hitting the dregs, I think. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, one of these is going to be, uh, they're all Mr. Irrelevant at this point. But what, who will be the definitive Mr. Irrelevant? Um, I'm going to go with Gary King um, because I do think he is a fuck up and I think people would get mad and annoyed at him uh, in a similar way to, to Kikuchio, but he did fight in uh, World's End. He did beat back uh, some of the robot aliens. Um, so Yeah, he did hold okay, his yeah. own. And he okay, was still... Us with... I forgot about the... the Is it the post credit scene or like the pre credits ending where he's living pretty well during the apocalypse? That is true. He does seem to have some leadership skills. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, I think that may have been the, yeah, that may be the steal of the draft. (laughs) 
Okay. Victor, We're down Willen, to Bob. Bob, yeah. <laughs> We're down to Bob Harris and George Bailey. Hmm. I think I'll go George Bailey. I mean, he okay. he wasn't able to serve because of his his uh, ear injury. How he was deaf in one of his ears, but he was also like the town. Uh, what was it like? He was the lookout for for air raid attacks. So like, yeah. He, he knows how to serve and everybody seemed to love him. I, you know, neither one of us quite understood it, but everybody in the <laughs> town seemed to think he was a great guy. So, yeah. you know, maybe that would translate to a, a battle situation. So also, he unfortunately that leaves you with Bob alone. Harris. Uh, so he probably That's is true. good with so maybe he, stuff. And maybe he could help like ration the ammunition or the supplies. So yeah, so, but you know, wars are not always fought on the front. That's true. That leaves you with Bob right, so Harris, lost you... in translation. Yeah. So uh, you, which... you doubled up on Bill Murray, and I doubled yeah. up on Takashi Shimura. <laughs> not the result I would have expected, but I don't, I'm not sure what Bob Harris can do. I will make a brief mention of, uh, you know, friend of the podcast, Carl Weathers, who passed away this, this week. Who R.I.P. Who was an action Weathers. star. R.I.P. Uh, you got a soup going. Um you know, I think Carl Weathers could be like a good member of a fighting force in real life, but uh, I don't think well, Bob Harris I mean, is a character. Is, he, Carl Weathers was a little fishy in Predator. He wasn't totally reliable. He had an ulterior agenda. Yeah, you're right. And I guess like also in Arrested Development, but I, he would be a good like forager, yeah. I think. It would depend on which Carl, Weather, Carl Weathers character we yeah. got. Yeah, he was also what was the the he led a movie I can't remember what it was called now shit um was the Action Jackson Ac- uh, was it Action Jackson was that his kind of leading that role right, that didn't yes. do too well I think that's right yeah I think that's it that sounds yes. correct all right so we finished our first ever sad man battle draft which. For some reason, podcasts <laughs> love drafts. All right, so just to recount, your team is Father Karras, Mr. Chow, Ben Mathias, Steve Zizou, CC Baxter, Gary King, and Bob Harris. And my team is Iron Man, Kanbe, Kanji Watanabe, Viago, Guido, Kikuchio, and George Bailey, which I have a very international team going there now that i look about it look at it yeah i think your team is good i i i mean on the feet the mere like whatever of like winning a team or like winning a team of defending a town or a village i i think your team wins hands down i mean realistically we probably should have excluded iron man maybe we should have just limited it to tony stark without the iron man suit in hindsight yeah i mean it's a good it's a good run and what i was going to say is that Next, we can do, you know, in another like 20 episodes, we could do like a NCAA movie uh, bracket to see which sad man movie is either the best or the saddest. That would be good. I don't think we've covered. Yeah, I think we'd have to do that next year. I don't think we have enough movies under our belt to do a March Madness this year. Yeah, we don't. We don't yet. But eventually. That is a great idea. Yeah. (laughs) Who is the saddest of the sad men? Yeah. I hope that was entertaining. (laughs) <laughs> I was we were entertained so I think that's enough <laughs> I was so nervous coming to this episode because I did I felt like I didn't have enough notes because I'm like it's a 
it's a great classic movie. What is there to say that hasn't been covered? And then it came to me in the shower. I was like, oh, we should draft sad man to make our own team. Yeah. <laughs> uh, seven no, samurai, was... seven sad men. Yeah. Seven sad men. That'll be look, man, if we ever break into the entertainment industry and make our own production company, that can be the name of it. But speaking of sad men, do you want to tell the listeners what we're going to watch for next episode? Yeah, so we're finally going to get off our bullshit and no more foreign films, no more black and white films. We're entering modern times and we're going to watch a little movie called Barbie and we're going to focus on Ken. We're going to focus the Kennergy for our next episode. Or we're going to use Ken as a means to talk about Barbie and Greta Gerwig, but either way, let's we'll do it. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah. You know what, if you've listened this far, you know what we're about. So we'll we'll put our own spin on it somehow. Oh, and then after that, just to, since we're doing it anyway, it's it's a full Barbenheimer month. So uh, Oppenheimer is coming after Barbie. So make sure you enjoy Barbie because it's going to be it's going to be a, a rough going in Oppenheimer, it seems like. Yeah, well, you know, it's I got what are the I got my thinking was this was Oscar oscar bait stuff yeah so i think no it's a good movie i'm just saying like take the joy you can out of barbie yeah i don't you know there really aren't too many modern sad men movies i was thinking about that the other day which i guess is a good thing the fact that you know how many have there been i mean oh boy i mean we came up before we started the podcast we had over a hundred ideas for sad men movies so i think it's kind of a good sign that there still aren't uh, a constant flow of sad men movies for us to talk about. So, I mean, it's a little, little frustrating that there, we don't have too many contemporary options, but at the same time, I think for society on the whole, I think it's a good thing that we're not. I mean, we, need to, we just need stories. to look at more European movies or something, you know, <laughs> like if we looked at more like French movies or, or Scandinavian movies, I think we'd have uh, a good set of recent sad man movies. Oh, I'm sure. But even for someone as pretentious as me, I'm getting tired of subtitles. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, I think we owe it to the listener to, uh, to to come back into the present. I think we owe it to ourselves to at least try to be somewhat relevant to modern times. What people told me, the uh, way to success is to alienate the audience completely. And so I thought we were doing that, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Either way, next episode will be Barbie. So check that out and we will, uh, I don't, you know, I still don't have a good closing for the stupid podcast. Cheer up, buddy. Yeah. If you're feeling sad, cheer up. We already talked about earlier. The thing to learn from this movie is that if you're feeling sad, talk about it. Yeah. And you'll feel better. Feel better. Yeah. And with that, we say goodbye. Bye. Bye.